The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, open with me to the book of James, chapter 5. As we continue to uh, walk verse by verse through this book, we're nearing the end. And in God's providence, on a day when we are taking communion together, when there are more elements in the physical service, um, it just so happens, just so works out, God in His providence has given us one verse for today. Uh, normally we look at, there are paragraphs that go together, but today as we walk through, this one verse has, has sort of puzzled uh, theologians and scholars for years as to why it sort of stands alone. Well, if for no other reason, God in His sovereignty throughout the ages and ages and ages saw that we would on this day need one verse to walk through together. And so I want to walk through this with you today, a powerful verse. The sermon is entitled, Tell the Truth. Uh, Tell the Truth. James 5, verse 12, let's read this together. James says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, words are powerful. With, with words, we can bring hope. We can bring comfort. We can bring love. We can bring uh, promises of fidelity with our words. With our words, we can bring discouragement. We can bring hurt. We can bring hate. We can murder with our words. We can bring betrayal with our words. With words, God created the universe. Let that sink in for just a minute. God spoke and there was. Out of nothing, God created with his words. And with words, the serpent went into the garden and began to speak to Eve. Adam there watching passively by her side. And with words, the serpent led mankind to distrust and disobey their maker. Ever since that day, mankind has used words to fit our agenda, whatever it happens to be at the moment. There are recent examples, and there are not so recent examples of this. Just think back to the trials with Bill Clinton in those years past where Bill Clinton says, well, it depends on what you mean by is. What does is mean? And it's a war of words, and they get minute, but words are powerful. Romans 3.13 describes just how wicked man has become in the using of words when Romans 3.13 says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. And many of you have been deceived by others with words, and many of you at times, all of us at times, have probably used words to deceive others. Along the way, after God spoke and used words to create the universe, and after the serpent used words to lead humanity to distrust and disobey God, Jesus came along and he used words to carry out the Father's agenda. Jesus came and used words like, come, follow me. Jesus said, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. He looked at that woman and said, where are your accusers? There are none, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus used words to tell stories. Stories like the Good Samaritan. Stories like the prodigal son. Jesus used words to say things like, 
Let the little children come to me. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, Jesus used words to affirm the teaching of the Old Testament, but also to build on it, not having to turn to an outside source, but having the very Word of God being the very Word of God. That's why he could say, but I say to you. The rest of the culture in that day depended on tradition. Jesus needed no tradition because he was the very Word of God. Jesus used words to say things like, rise and walk. Jesus spoke to demons and said, go, and they went. Jesus spoke to dead and said things like, come forth, to watch them walk out of the grave. The words of any true believer should reflect the power that they have received in the gospel. And this has been James' point throughout his entire letter. Over and over again, he has talked about the power of the tongue and the misuse of words. In chapter 1, verse 26, he talked about the tongue of a believer, of a true Christian who has received the gospel and the Holy Spirit resides within, should bridle her tongue. In chapter 2, verse 12, the tongue should be holy. In chapter 3, verses 2 through 11, our tongues, the tongues of believers, should be controlled. In chapter 4, verse 11, our tongues should never be used to slander another brother or sister. And here, in this one verse today, our tongues should be instruments of truth. This was a major issue for James because James knew that our speech manifests what's really in our hearts. Now, all throughout James, it's been very clear as you walk through this how many times James seems to almost be just repeating the teaching of Jesus. If you walk through the Sermon on the Mount, so, many of, so much of what James says seems to have just been a parroting of what Jesus had said there. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34, verse 34, How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Jesus knew that the heart was the storehouse, and the mouth revealed what people kept there. And James knows that as well. You and I, sometimes words come out that we never should have said. Isn't that true? They escape before we could ever put them back in. And once they're out, you can't put them back in. James knew, Jesus knew, that words come from a storehouse, the reality of our hearts. Just when you and I think, we talked in the membership class this, this morning, just when you and I think that we have arrived and we've got it all together and we've got this Christianity thing down and we begin to look down our noses at other people, our words betray us, don't they? We will say an unkind thing. We will tell a fib. We will tell a lie. And it comes out and it, just to show us that you and I are not our own Savior, that Jesus alone can save us. The gospel is indeed our only hope. Never has there been a more important time for Christians to speak truthfully uh, if, if there is a sin that is excused and even celebrated in our culture today, I would say it's, it's the sin of lying. Even in the church, someone says, did, did you get to that yet? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm waiting for them to call me back. When the reality is you haven't thought about it since the last time you and that person spoke. It's celebrated. It's whoever can be the most crafty, the most 
entertaining in the way they can twist words oftentimes is admired in our culture. If there's ever a time where Christians need to speak truthfully, to speak like Christ, to speak like those who have actually received the gospel of Christ, it's now. Our culture has increasingly, over the years, developed more and more euphemisms for, for telling lies, for being deceitful. We no longer say the words lie. We say all kinds of other things. We no longer tell lies. Instead, we misspeak. We exaggerate. We exercise poor judgment. Well, we say things like, mistakes were made. The term deceive gives way to the more playful spin. I didn't deceive, I just put a little spin on it. Saying I wasn't truthful sounds better than I lied. Isn't that the truth? We like to spin it because we know in our hearts that there is a reality here. There is an objective standard that to tell the truth is right. And to lie is wrong. We know this. Every culture in the history of civilization has known that truth is right and good and that to lie is wrong. You don't have to be taught that, but at the same time, you don't have to be taught to lie. Anybody with children knows you don't have to teach children to lie. Where did this big spot on the rug come from? I don't know. Right? When they're the ones who stood over it just an hour ago with a whole bottle of Hershey syrup thinking this would be cool and just squeezing it out on the carpet, right? You don't have to teach anybody to lie, but we all know lying is wrong. First, today, in this, in this one verse today, in our limited time together, I want us to do one, two things. First, I want us to examine what the Bible teaches about taking oaths, truth-telling, about taking vows and keeping those. Secondly, I want us then to look at what are some effects, seven effects, if the Lord wills, on a community that is built on this radical truthfulness. Kent Hughes, that's a term I borrowed from him, radical truthfulness. What will, what will that community look like? What will begin to happen in a community that, that values radical truthfulness? Well, let's look at this together. James here says, but above, but above all, brothers, do not swear. Now, James is not talking about, uh, y'all are laughing because my mouth sometimes gets faster than, than my brain sometimes, so sorry about that. But uh, he says, do not swear, and he's not meaning talking about four-letter words. There have been others in, throughout history that have come to this, and because their, their son or their daughter or someone had a, had a dirty mouth, they wanted to use this in a way that would, that would say, see, God's on my side. Do not swear. But James here is not talking about using four-letter or obscene words. Instead, he's using this to talk about the very common practice of swearing oaths. He's talking about what was going on in the culture. People would swear these oaths in order to prove that they were telling the truth. We do the same thing. Maybe not as much as we used to, but I, I'll never forget the first time, and I, won't, I can't recall it exactly, but, but I remember how that felt the first time I heard somebody say, I swear to God. Right? Or having somebody in elementary, say, elementary school say, do you swear on the Bible? Or to say things like, do you swear on your mama's grave? And I would say, 
My mom's alive. That would be kind of hard to do, right? But he's, that's what he's talking about is this, these little phrases, these little formulas that we use and that were very common in this day in order to add that we are telling the truth in this instance. So when James here says, do not swear, is this James' way of prohibiting all oaths, that we should never take oaths? Well, there have been those in history that have said, yes, that's exactly what he's talking about. And they have, they have refused to take an oath to tell the truth in court, that this would rule out taking an oath of office to take public office to serve a community. But I don't think that's what James is talking about at all. And, and to understand that, we've got to understand what the whole Bible teaches on this. First off, you've got to see that God himself made oaths. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 11 said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God himself makes an oath here. He swears on himself. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to whom, by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. What else was God supposed to say? God can't very well say, I swear to God, or I swear by God. God, what was he going to say? So help me, me. God can't do that, but nevertheless, God makes an oath, right? Jesus spoke under oath at his trial. Those that would say James here is prohibiting those from taking an oath, even in a courtroom, Jesus spoke under oath. Matthew 26 tells us, but Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. In other words, you're under oath, tell us the truth. And Jesus said to him, you've said so, or it is as you say. Paul took vows. Paul called God as his witness in Romans chapter 1, verse 9. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that, I, that without ceasing I mention you. In 2 Corinthians 1, 23, Paul said, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming against, again to Corinth. So we see in, in the Bible that God himself, Jesus under oath, and Paul swears these oaths. In fact, if you go back a little further and you look at the Old Testament teaching as a whole, it wasn't just these instances where these had swore oaths, but the Old Testament actually encouraged to take vows. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20 says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So the Old Testament here encourages the taking of oaths. What the Old Testament didn't do, it did not encourage a person to take an oath and then to not keep that oath. Numbers chapter 30 verse 2 says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Leviticus 19 verse 12 says, you shall not swear by my name falsely. God doesn't say, don't swear at all. He says, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. 
I promise you, we're, we're going somewhere, so bear with me. God himself takes these oaths. Jesus spoke under oath. Paul uses them to, to call God as his witness. The Old Testament encourages the taking of vows. The Old Testament discourages, though, the breaking of these vows. And by New Testament times, what James is dealing with here when he writes his letter to the scattered church, which is a general letter to all churches everywhere, not like a specific epistle that would go to a particular church body, but even comes these thousands of years later later to us. By the New Testament times, the teaching about oaths was being perverted and twisted to fit these sinful lifestyles. In fact, it had degenerated into a way to determine when it was okay for a person to lie and when it was not. There were certain, certain rabbis were teaching things like, well, it's okay to make a vow, but if you make a vow and you leave God's name out and you don't utter his name, then you're not obligated to fulfill that. But if in making that vow you utter the name of God or even say things like, I swear by Jerusalem, you are calling him into the, the, to the picture and you are obligated to fulfill that vow. What was happening was these were, this was just a, a system of determining when I can lie and when I can't lie. Men were saying things like, I swear on my beard. They were looking for some lesser sacred thing that they could swear by that would not obligate them in the long run. Now, let me ask you this. Is that the type of integrity that the gospel should call us to? Should there be some area of our life that is sacred and holy, and if, we, if we've walked in that or if we are walking in that, then, then in this area, then we should be people of integrity over here. But as long as we're not in this context, we can live however we want. Is that what the gospel calls us to? Listen to how Jesus responds. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What Jesus is saying is that sin has done what it has always done. It pollutes something meant to be good. It takes it to an area where We use it and abuse it for our own agenda. Jesus says here in the New Testament, James backs him up and says again, don't swear an oath at all. Now, he's not saying in the case of you're going to be witnessing in a a case and you've got to take an oath to tell the truth. He's not saying don't do that. What he's saying is when it's freely, you're freely of your will making a promise Don't call God into the picture. Don't call anything else into the picture because, look, Jesus said, how can you call anything else into the picture and not call God in? Doesn't God own it all anyway? Aren't you by swearing by your beard or your hair or or by Jerusalem or anything else just naming something that he owns? Don't swear it at all. Whenever we say things like, I swear to God, aren't we just marking off this one area saying, this is an area where I'm telling you, this is an area of absolute truth. 
as compared to what I normally do. Isn't that what we're saying? My wife and I, and this is, this is sad that we have this, but we have a phrase, and I'm not going to say this phrase to you, and it, it's, it's nothing, you know, it's just a simple little phrase, but that's our phrase that we know if we're, you know, if we say that, there's no joking, there's no, we're serious. This is the truth. Now, isn't that sad that my wife and I, your pastor, has to have that in, in his marriage? <laughs> that's pretty sad. But she knows me. She knows how I am. She knows how I love to joke. And she knows how I love to mess with her just a little bit. And so we've developed this to where she can say, and I'll say, you know, right? Whenever we say things like, I swear to God, we're just marking off an area of our lives that we say, now this, in this, I'm telling the truth. I don't usually do that. Aren't we also, aren't we also expecting them to expect us to be lying from the get-go? Isn't that sad? Should that be the story of a believer's life? Or should the community of faith be so committed to radical truthfulness that To make an oath, to swear by anything, is just extra words. They're not needed because the community out there assumes that we're telling the truth. Daniel Doriani, in his commentary, said it this way. Even the honest youth of oaths testifies that something is amiss in the community. If believers reliably told one another the truth, what need would there be of oaths to guarantee truth-telling? Think about how this community would view us differently if we were a people who were committed to radical truthfulness. Now, there's your biblical background for what the Bible teaches on oaths. God himself, Jesus, Paul, the Old Testament encouraged it, it, but it discouraged breaking of those vows. By the time the New Testament time had come along, it, it was perverted and twisted and sin had distorted it. So Jesus said, Don't do it at all. James says, don't do it at all. Because the issue is radical truthfulness. I want to give you quickly, in just a few minutes, I'm going to run through these, okay? As much as as much as I can hold to that. I'm going to try to run through these. Seven effects in our community of radical truthfulness. Number one, radical truthfulness will set us apart from the rest of the world. Matthew 12, Jesus said, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The reality here is, you and I, if if there's no gospel reality in us, it will do us no good to commit to radical truthfulness. Because Jesus here said, you're only going to speak what is true of you. But if, there, if, if there's a reality here that there is a root of the gospel in us, it should be producing fruit of truthfulness in our lives. That's the reality. Does it mean that we will always be perfect in this? No. But neither should we hide behind it and say, well, you know, I'm not going to be perfect. And so we use that as an excuse to live in less than an, uh, a way of integrity. 
Radical truthfulness will set us apart from the rest of the world. You don't have to look at the world very long to say it is a deceitful world. Let that not be so of the church. Two, radical truthfulness will get us in trouble at times. Radical truthfulness will get us in trouble at times. In a day where the world keeps changing its mind on what's right and what is wrong, claiming and proclaiming an objective truth on cultural issues can get us into hot water fast. The culture used to tell us what it meant to be a man. What they're telling us today is very different than what they told us then. What they will tell us 10, 15, 20 years from now will probably be different than what they are saying to us now. You and I cannot take our cues from the culture. We must be a people that stands on the Word of God and proclaims the Word of God when it is popular and when it is not. In a day where gender is a fluid term, we must stand where the Bible stands. In all those other areas, we must stand where the Bible stands. We must be willing to draw lines in the sand where the Bible draws lines in the sands. We must be also refusing to draw lines in the sand where the Bible does not draw lines in the sand. But this will at times get us into hot water. All you have to do is look at the the example this week in Houston where the mayor in the city of Houston used the court system to subpoena the sermons of pastors in Houston who spoke out against the policy in that city that she had just instituted on the issue of homosexuality, the lesbian, gay, transgender community. And our own government is now using the court system to subpoena these sermons. Standing where the Bible stands, telling the truth where the Bible calls it truth, will get us into hot water. But we must stand there anyway. Number three, radical truthfulness will bring power into our lives. Radical truthfulness will bring power into our lives. As we consistently let our yes be yes and our no be no, people begin to trust and will turn to us in times of need. You say, well, that's unpopular to say today. No, if you will consistently be a person of truth, not just in these areas of speaking to the culture, but in the way you interact with the people that you work with, Students, when you go to school, if you will be a person of integrity there consistently over time, they will see that there is a truth to the gospel in you. And it will cause them to turn to you for help. You're not the answer and you can't save anyone. But we ought to be a people that says we will not let our untruthfulness keep anybody from coming to Christ. Consistently, over time, being people of truth. When we, in our laziness, have dropped the ball and someone asks us about it, rather than pride rising to the top and us saying, oh yeah, I've, I've been working on that, not quite there yet. Instead, we ought to be people that say, I failed. I dropped the ball on this. I, I, I just didn't think about it. I'm sorry. You see, that's hard in the moment. Because when you're sitting in a committee 
or you're sitting in some, some arena and they look at and you say, they're going to think that I'm horrible, that I'm this lazy scum of the earth, that I put all of them behind because of my sinfulness. You say, well, I can't do that. I can't let them think that, so I will tell them a little lie. The reality is when you stand up in that moment and say, this is on me, I messed this up, I'm sorry. They may not like it in the moment. They may still think that there is laziness in you. They may still look down their nose at you. But over time, as you consistently are a person of truth, they will also learn that while you have your shortcomings, you are a person that will speak the truth even when it's you that you are throwing under the bus. Radical truthfulness will bring power into our lives. Four, radical truthfulness will bring grace to a confused world. Radical truthfulness will bring grace to a confused world. In doing so, we model, when when we are committed to radical truthfulness, we are modeling to a watching world what God is like. Don't forget that you and I were created in the image of God meaning we are to be a reflection of him. When we walk through the book of 1 Corinthians, what was the title of that that whole series? A living reflection of a living God. Well, this is an area where this fleshes itself out. When you and I are committed to radical truthfulness and we throw ourselves under the bus at times, the world says, you know what? That's what their God's like. That he does not lie. He will not lie. No matter whose neck is on the line, he won't lie. Not only that, he keeps his promises. You've heard me say, when you have fallen and you have not kept your vows, then make sure you admit it. Don't, let, don't hear that I'm telling you today that it's okay to break your vows as long as you're honest and admitting that you've done so. Listen, church, the way we live as well as the way we speak says something about our God. When you make a commitment to be somewhere, when you make a commitment to serve in some area, when you make a commitment, whatever the case may be, and you just don't show up, it's more than that one moment in time. And as long as they get it covered, it's, it's okay. It'll all work out. It says something about the God you claim to follow. Doesn't it? Let's be a people that keep our vows, and in so doing, bring grace to the world. Now, James, I'm not saying here that we make vows, because James says, don't make vows. But what I'm saying to you is, there are cases where Jesus here, James is not ruling out vows, because he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's saying there will, there will be commitments that you will make, but don't hide behind saying, I swear to God, Or I swear on the Bible, just let your yes be yes. When you say, yes, I will serve here. Yes, I will do this. Then follow through. Because in doing so, you make much of your God. You bring grace to to a confused world. Fifth, radical truthfulness will bring honor to God. Radical truthfulness will bring honor to God. Matthew 5, 16, I quoted this last Sunday, and for some reason God has bubbled it to the surface again. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
when you and I are truthful, when we live these lives, it's not just about them one day turning to us so that we can be the hero. It's not about that at all. Instead, it's so that they might see our good works, which then will funnel them and filter them toward our Father. There's not one person in this room who is a genuine believer who can say, I'm here by my own accord. I I couldn't help as we were singing today and I was watching the choir. I looked at certain individuals who were up there. I know they're not up here for us. They're not up here to entertain, not at all. But I couldn't help but to to look at them and, and to know things that they are going through on their own at this moment. And to see them sing and lift their hands was powerful. It, it caused me to glorify my father. And to see Michelle Edmondson, who is struggling with some real health issues and has been for a long time, to see her lift her hand and sing, one day sin and death will be no more. That sickness that brings on death is one day going to be put away. And to see her physically in that choir loft pointing to that day and hoping for that day and being joyful in that day caused me to glorify my Father. And the same will happen when you, who claim to know Christ and follow Him, when you live a life committed to radical truthfulness, there will be others that will say, there's something beyond them. Number six, radical truthfulness will build up the church. Radical truthfulness will build up the church. Ephesians 4 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This whole section of Scripture in Ephesians is in the context of God giving certain individuals and certain gifts for the building up of the church. But don't miss the fact that there is an element in there that helps the church grow, and it is speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love will build up the church. This is sometimes difficult. And I have been preaching this for the last five years as your pastor, but it is sometimes difficult to look at a brother or sister and say, what you are participating in is sin. I cannot look at you and tell you that I love you in Christ and let it go on. Would you turn from it and trust Christ? That's hard. But speaking the truth in love will build up the church. Number seven is this. Radical truthfulness will be worth it on the day of judgment. James here in this very last phrase of verse 12, he says, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Again, Matthew 12, Jesus, where James gets this teaching from, said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Church, we should take great comfort in the fact that when we stand on the day of judgment, if we are truly believers, if we are truly His who have been redeemed, there will be no condemnation for us. But we should also be very aware that on that day, we will, we will all stand before God and our 
works, what we have done in the body, will be examined. And some of those will go on to live stored up in eternity, and others of those will be taken away. There will be rewards that will be given, and there will be rewards that will be taken. Some things we will be counting on will be taken because they will have been done with wrong motives, with less than integrity. But I'm telling you, church, if you and I will be a people that is committed to radical truthfulness, we will not be sorry. We may get in trouble sometimes here. It may cost us a little bit here. But on that day, it will be worth it all. Amen? Let's be a people that are committed to radical truthfulness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that today there is nothing good in me, that today I can't walk down from this platform and begin to pat myself on the back, that none of us can walk out of this place and congratulate ourselves for being such a fine role model. There's nothing good in us except you. You are good in all things and you are making us like Christ. There's coming a day where sin and death will be no more. There's coming a day when lying will be no more. But God, we're not there yet. And every single day, Lord, we face the temptation to use our words to fit our agenda. God, I pray that you would war against that in our lives, that we would be a people that commit to radical truthfulness, that we would be a people that depend on your word and the Holy Spirit and the community of faith. And God, that over time that you would continue to just do away with this deception and make us more and more and more pure in the way we live and the way we speak and the way we interact with one another. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the response is different today because this is a day where we've marked out to celebrate communion together. You see the tables up here at the front of the room and there are trays of bread and there are trays of juice on these tables. And, uh, and this is a response. This is a way that you participate in the worship today. This is not the point of the service where it's over and we check out. This is the point now where you begin to participate, where I, I pause the sermon and you pick up the sermon. I'm tagging you in right now. Because when you come to this table, you're coming and, and you are proclaiming the death of Christ, his burial and his resurrection, and you are proclaiming that one day he's coming again. That you are preaching a sermon to everyone in this room that watches you. And I want to encourage you that as you come to the table today, as a believer, as a member of this faith family, to examine your heart, to not come haphazardly, to not simply just walk to this table because it's, it's, you know, it, it's time we do it again and we, we go through the motions, but instead that right now that you would use this time as Ethan begins to lead in song. Maybe you've already done this, but if not, take some time and examine your heart. Ask the Lord, is there sin in my life that I need to confess to you? Use this time. Prepare your heart, and when you are ready, I'm going to ask you to to come to these tables very reverently. 
You can come with your family. You can come with your Sunday school class. You can come with people on your row. You can come to both sides of the table. I I love looking over and seeing groups gathered around the table together because in doing so, we're being a faith family. We're doing really what they did in that upper room that night before Christ was crucified. Come to this, though, with all seriousness. The reality is there will be lines that will form in these aisles. It's not a time for you to to talk about the ball games or to talk about this or that. I want to encourage you to, to come with a very reverent, worshipful heart to God. I'm going to be seated right down here on the front uh, before I take communion in a minute with my family. And uh, if there's something in the meantime that, that you'd like to talk to me about, uh, maybe it's coming to know Christ as Savior. Maybe it's, um, it's some other issue you'd like to pray. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. Uh, you can come while everyone else is kind of filtering through. There are also, there will be, I think, still people in the prayer room today out these doors. Uh, they would love to pray with you. Whatever it is that you need to do, take care of that today. Use this as an opportunity to respond to the Word of God and the Gospel of God. Um, it's not your only opportunity. It doesn't cut off when we say amen. But we are building this in and giving you an opportunity and calling you to respond. So, as Ethan leads, there will be deacons who are here at the tables. If you're here and, and you, uh, uh, you can't get physically to the table, it's just it's too hard for you to get here. If you would just lift your hand, there will be people that will be watching. And, uh, and we would love to come to you and serve. But let's participate. Let's preach the sermon of the death, burial, resurrection, and coming again of Christ. Respond to God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.